teach my son that all the time. I'm like, hey, there's a difference. If he's making fun of you for being a Christian, you can't get upset and walk over and punch him in the face. But when he pushes at your sister or tries to hurt your sister, then it's on, bro. Use all of you to defend what the Lord has given you. So being a Christian does not mean we let people walk on us or take junk from jerks or run from the battle or confrontation. In fact, it means that you might have to run to the battle. You might have to run to the battle. Christ is often misinterpreted as being a pacifist. While he did encourage us to respond to personal attacks, such as a slap on the cheek, in a way that demonstrates grace and love to our attacker, he was not a proponent of passively standing by in the face of injustice or abuse. You need to stand up for the oppressed. Pastor Mark challenges us in today's message, especially when it comes to spiritual warfare. You can't shy away from battle. You need to run to the battle, dressed in the armor of God. His truth and love are your greatest weapons to vanquish the enemy that seeks to destroy all of mankind. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of Nehemiah chapter 11 for today's edition of Come Alive. One of my favorite authors or Bible teachers, his name's David Guzik, he had this to say, to live in Jerusalem, you had to, number one, reorder your view of material things. You had to give up land in your previous region and take up some kind of new business in Jerusalem, a fresh start. Number two, To live in Jerusalem, you had to rearrange your social priorities. Certainly, you're going to leave some friends behind and family behind in your old village. That's what these people would do. The third thing would be to live in Jerusalem, you had to have a mind to endure the problems in the city. It had been a ghost town for 70 years, and it was now basically slightly rebuilt. It wasn't perfect. It was a fixer-upper. It was a somewhat repopulated ghost town, but the city didn't look at all like that glorious place that it needed to look like. It needed work. The fourth thing he says to live in Jerusalem, you had to live like knowing you were a target for the enemy. There were strong walls to protect you, but since Jerusalem was now a notable city that has been rebuilt with rebuilt walls, the fear was more from whole armies than just bands of robbers. The old village was nice, but not much in danger from great armies. And then the fifth thing he says, the Bible tells us There's a city coming down from heaven to earth when God is done with this earth as we know it, and he calls it the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 2. See, people don't really want to be citizens of the new Jerusalem for the very same reasons many people didn't want to be citizens of the old Jerusalem or Nehemiah's Jerusalem. Look at uh, verse 3. Verse 3 says, These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem, But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possession in the cities. Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. So here, and we take a look at this as we run through the next couple of verses. We see that in these next verses, God remembers his servants. 
Here we have more lists of names. We see that Nehemiah is diligent in remembering those who served God and sacrificed for his glory. It's not a bad thing to remember those who have, say, who have served and even have given, are getting some recognition for it. But the important thing is for you and I to learn is that God does not forget those who sacrifice for him. And there's a list of names here. See, God's not a forgettable God. So we will also see somewhat of a division of labor in in the following verses in this chapter. Look at verse 4. You see the list right here in verse 3. It lists the heads of the family. And so as they roll through there, so every time you see a name, you're not just seeing one person represented, but an entire family. That's how they did it. So it would be like Martinez. It wouldn't be the Martinez's. It would just be Martinez. And that would be the list of family that's there. Whether they like it or not, fathers, you and me as dads, if you're a dad, you represent your family. You like it or not. The responsibility of the family goes on the father, either for good or bad. That's just the way it works out. Verse 4, if you look at verse 4, only those that descended from Judah or Benjamin could live in that city of Jerusalem since it was their city historically. Other people from other tribes would have to dwell elsewhere. The other half of verse 4 through 6, it talks about here, it says, Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin, the children of Judah, Athaniah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of... And I'm not going to go through each one of those names and butcher them, but verses 4 through 6, we see that there's a count of the men of the tribe of Judah. These 468 men were called valiant. True to their historical background, this meant that they were warriors. They were warriors. It takes valiant men to defend a depopulated city surrounded by enemies. It's the job and the calling of men in the church to be valiant, especially when it comes in times of danger. The danger might be from the outside where people are standing up, and we see this today. They're, they're saying, hey, we want to remove the word God in this, and we want to remove the Ten Commandment plaque in this, and we want to do this, and we want to be more tolerant to this. We want to be more tolerant to those who aren't tolerant, which is kind of weird to me. But there will come a day when we will no longer have to learn the art of war, but for the time being, it's the duty of men to be valiant, to protect their families. You know, the, the greatest generation, that World War II generation, you know, People lied so they could go to war. Young men lied so they could go to war, to get shot at. We, we were watching footage the other day of, uh, of the D-Day invasion and, and the beach at Normandy, and these guys and people are shooting at them, and the boats drop those, those gates, and these guys just run into them. And I'm just like sitting there going, I wonder if I could be that guy. I wonder if I could be that guy. And then to run in battle with your gun and to shoot and see your best friend get shot or blown up or whatever it is, those guys who serve our country, we look at them and we're like, oh man, it must have been cool to wear a uniform. It must have been cool to do. No, no, no. I look at them and I say, man, what you must have lost, but also what you gained because we get to see that. I look at those guys that are wearing a uniform and I tell them, thank you. They are those guys who get that honor from the people. And so that's what it's talking about here. But again, there's going to be a day where there won't be a war, but we need valiant men and Christians to take a stand. Maybe not for a true war or a physical battle, but for a spiritual battle. As Christians, we're to be those that are quick to forgive, to bless our enemies, even love our enemies. You know, that's what the Bible says. 
in marriage counseling, sometimes husbands and wives, they come in and they're so angry at each other. And I'm like, well, are, are you guys enemies? Yeah, right now we are. Okay, good. Love her. Love him. It says right here in the Bible, love your enemies. We willing to do that? Oh, dude, it was so much better when I could just be mad and rag on her or him. See, we need to be quick to forgive and even turn our cheek to those who persecute us. Those who blab stuff and say stuff, call names, accuse falsely, whatever it is, just turn your cheek and be like, all right, cool, man, I'm just going to pray for them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. But when someone threatens your family, it is biblical to protect them. There's a time for peace and a time for war. You, If you came to me and you said, hey, Mark, somebody broke into the house and I just let them do whatever to my family, I'd be like, dude, you're nuts. You need to protect your family. And so if someone persecutes me for the name of Christ, I'm to bless them and pray for them. But if someone tries to come into my house and hurt my wife or my children, I'm to protect them with my life. There's a difference between persecution for Christ and the way you react and defend you're a bully who just wants to hurt people for no reason other than evil. I, I teach my son that all the time. I'm like, hey, there's a difference. If he's making fun of you for being a Christian, you can't get upset and walk over and punch him in the face. But when he pushes at your sister or tries to hurt your sister, then it's on, bro. Use all of you to defend what the Lord has given you. So being a Christian does not mean we let people walk on us or take junk from jerks, or run from the battle, or confrontation. In fact, it means that you might have to run to the battle. You might have to run to the battle, and you might have to embrace it. You might have to put your life on the line for it to defend someone for the sake of righteousness. It may not be your life, but it may be your reputation. Maybe you know something, and you're like, hey, I'm going to defend this person, regardless of how many of you think otherwise. I know the truth. Find out the truth first. That's always the best thing. Find out what's being said. Is it true? Is it true? And if it's not true, then defend that other person's honor and say, hey, that's not true. I had to do that this week. Somebody was making fun of another guy. And I said, well, as much as I don't like that guy, I think you're wrong in your assumption and I will defend what he did. And it meant a little bit of an argument, but I wasn't going to back down from it. And then later on, a day or two later, the guy calls me and says, hey, I apologize. I really respect you for standing for him. I know you guys have had your differences, but you know what? You're right. Big deal. Look at verse 7 through 9. Next, we have the count of the men from the tribe of Benjamin. We find out that Benjamin is more of an organizer or a desk jockey than a fighter. He's, a, he's kind of you know more of a lover than a fighter. Judah, the son of Senua, was like the assistant city manager or maybe a deputy mayor. Verse 10 through 12, we have the priests. Those are the priests. When you think about the priest, the word priest actually means bridge builder. They were those who worked in the temple of God. They built the bridge between man and God. They did certain things. The Levites were assistants to the priests. The families of Jedediah and Jachin were to work. They did the work of the temple, mainly taking care of the sacrifices. They were like the butchers. They would slaughter the animals and offer the sacrifices on on, a, on the altar. And then verse 13, uh, the rest of 12 and some of 13, these men were the heads of the father's houses, the leaders of the men of the temple. 13 and 14 mentions uh, there's the 128 men listed as mighty men of valor. That meant that these guys, when you think about this, and this is really kind of cool, these guys were like warrior priests, those who would protect the temple with their lives. Uh, they, they would stand in way of any kind of harm to make sure the temple would be protected, that God's house was going to be protected. 
The temple would have been the biggest target in Jerusalem since it was kind of the sacred area. And it was also the how it housed all of the treasury of God and it contained valuable instruments, gold and silver and all that stuff. All that stuff that was used in worship for God. In those days when the enemy came, if they could take the Ark of the Covenant, that would basically mean they just captured your God. And so they, these guys, you, you got to think about it. I don't know if they had weapons, but they would be willing to stand in the way and fight to the death to protect what's God's. Uh, yeah, that speaks to me a lot. Uh, am I willing to fight for what's God's? Fight to the death? Maybe the, the death of a relationship of some friends or whatever it may be? It, it, what about you? See, for today, our body is the temple and there's a war going on for it. Satan wants you. Satan wants you and you must fight every single day to go to war to suit up in the full armor of God. See, he's not going to send you out there with nothing, but he wants you to suit up in the full armor and every day we need to suit up. Putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, shotting our feet with, you know, the the belt of truth and then shotting our feet and, and just totally there, the sword of the spirit, the Bible. He provides us weapons, a shield, protection. But you know what's not protected? Your backside. It never says, you know, and and the plate that covers your rear end. Because we're not to retreat and run away. We are to, like I said, we are to run towards the battle. You might say, you know, surrender is not an option. The minute we as Christians surrender, we, we say, okay, Satan, you win. We don't surrender. So the local church, we copy this organization with spiritual leaders, pastors, elders, teachers, people who are are in the body. The people who teach the kids are their leaders. They are to protect those children and fight for those children. How do you fight? How do you and I do battle for one another on our knees in prayer? That's how we do it. Verse 15 through 16, we see the Levites, those who assisted the priests of the temple in more practical ways. It said that these guys had oversight of the business outside of the house of God while the priests took care of the internal and spiritual work of the temple. This would have included repairs to the temple that were needed. And so they could have been like the janitors. We see uh, Mataniah, who was a spiritual leader of these guys. And because he was a leader, he began the prayer of thanksgiving. And we see uh, back Bukiah, he was second along with his brethren in this role. This role was performed by the, we could say, the deacons, you know, who are spiritual leaders, but they head up practical areas of ministry. Verse 18, uh, these guys, when you look at these guys, they're very few. The Levites played a vital role in taking care of the practical work of the temple. And you might say these guys would be the equivalent of janitors or groundskeepers, construction workers, the people who really keep the thing going. They, everybody has an important role. Somebody was laughing the other day. They looked at my LinkedIn account and they said, seriously, you consider yourself the head janitor at Calvary Chapel? And I was like, it doesn't say janitor. I think it says maintenance engineer, but whatever. It's the same thing, right? But yes, I do. And, and, and if I didn't have the title of pastor, and that's truly, that was my title, I would be happy with that. I remember at Calvary Albuquerque when I got to do janitorial work, I loved it. I loved it going in between services. And we had three services and cleaning the bathrooms and getting them ready for people to go to the bathroom. Somebody was like, what, what do you love that for? I was like, man, that's an important role. Think about if your church had a filthy bathroom, what that says to the the new guy that walks in that's maybe going to get saved, that might turn him off. He walks out the door. That's an important role. The smile on the face of the usher and the greeter. 
You know, that, that's an important place. It's kind of like I tell people all the time, when you drive through Walmart's parking lot, who's the most important person at Walmart? The cart guy. Because if he's out there flipping you off, you might just turn and be like, yeah, same to you, buddy. I'm out of here. I'm going to another grocery store. That's, that's the first guy you see. So we would call those guys, the groundskeepers, construction, janitorial, the, the staff that keeps it going. Verse 19, next we see some among the Levites, the gatekeepers. And again, those guys would be like ushers and greeters. Verse 20 through 21. In these verses, well, we see some slightly out of order kind of here since Nehemiah lists in verse 22 through 24 some more people who live in Jerusalem. But he makes this special mention of the Nethanim because they had no inheritance in Israel. He mentions them. They have no inheritance in Israel. Their only job was to be servants of the Levites. And I think this, the reason they're listed here is because Ophiel was located in the northern section of Jerusalem and it literally bordered the outer city wall. And so they were not allowed to live in Jerusalem. But let me just tell you this, they got as close as they could. Any smart person knows if you got a big fortified city and a great army and their priests are willing to die and God's on their side, you better get as close to them as possible because you stand a greater chance than being away from them. But so they got as close as they could. They had the hardest and the lowest job and actually lived in the most danger since they lived right outside the city walls. And they would have been the first to go. Despite being descendants of Gentiles, God records them in his book and he makes special recognition for them. You know what? I even believe, I I truly believe this because it is in the Old Testament. Anyone that wanted to convert could have lived probably converted. And, And I think these guys probably did. It's just because they couldn't live inside of the walls. That's why they lived as close as they possibly could. Verse 22 through 23, we see a guy named Uzi. He was a guy who invented this really cool gun. I'm kidding, he didn't. He was the overseer of all the Levites, and he seems to have been descended from the sons of Asaph, which meant he was probably the worship leader in the house of God. So the Persian king truly wanted these guys, the worship leaders, to be well cared for. Being that Uzi was a worship leader and his food was provided for him by the Persian empire, he would have had a lot of downtime. That that made him a good candidate, not just to oversee the worship of the temple, but a lot of the practical aspects of what goes on in it. And so he may oversee a group of overseers. You know, he might oversee a group of facilitators or something, another group of people. Verse 24, living in the city also was the newly appointed deputy of the king. And, and this man, and think about this, this was Nehemiah at one point, but Nehemiah says, you know what, I'm going to step back and somebody else gets this because he, re, he was a representative of the king of Persia to the people of Jerusalem. And so the uh, people of Jerusalem would have to answer to the king of Persia. Nehemiah was really wise to pass this position on um, to this guy here. It says, you know, Pathaliah, the son of Meshiza, of the children of Zerah, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. So he, he was there. Now, 25 through 36, it's the rest of the people that repopulated the land. We kind of look upon these people as less of the heroes for not living in Jerusalem. But don't do that if you read through this list of names, because everyone who returned to the land after the captivity was truly a hero to do so. It was dangerous there. They just had different callings, just like you and I have different callings, different vocations. Some of us, not all of us, work in the same place. Some of us have the callings that come with a higher level of sacrifice than others. But all, let me say this, all are necessary. All are necessary. 
So when you look at these other names in these last few verses, understand that, that every single person, just like you, have an important role here. And I've said it once and I'll say it again, and maybe I've said it more than once. I'm sure I have. But just sitting in the chairs that you occupy is a very important role because that new person that ever walks through the door, they walk in there and they're like, oh, cool, there are people here. And maybe you can't relate to that one individual, but somebody over here may. And if somebody over here can't, maybe somebody in the front row. Who knows how you fit in, but you fit in. The Lord knows how you fit in. And so we don't get up after service and run to our little group and there's a new person. I mean, how, how many of you been new to something? Raise your hand. Anybody ever been new? I've been new. I remember the, one of the first times I ever walked into a church other than Calvary Albuquerque. I walked into another church one time and everybody just kind of looked at me. And I'm just sitting there going, this is weird. I feel weird. I should get up and talk to somebody. So, you know, I'm kind of looking around and everybody's kind of in their little group. And I was like, man. And eventually... Eventually, one guy came over and started speaking with me. And I was like, oh, that felt so good. He asked some really weird questions, but I mean, it felt good that somebody was talking to me. I didn't feel alone. Nobody likes to be alone. And so they had different callings, different vocations. You and I have different callings, different vocations. Somebody walks in the door, maybe they don't relate to you. That's okay. Find out what they like and point them. I do that all the time. Somebody goes, hey, man, I work in this field. Dude, you know what? Your lingo and that dude's lingo, they're the same. You guys, I better get along great. So here's the deal. Number one, as we close, leaders don't get the option to cast lots. We don't get the options to cast lots. They must be the first to set the example. Husbands and dads, be the first to set the example. If you want your kids to grow up and live godly lives, then guess what, dad? Start today living a godly life. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know how. I'll give you a hint. Proverbs, start Proverbs chapter one. That'll help you get there. We must be the first to set the example and take the hardest conditions in the way of life for the sake of the betterment of the people. Number two, God calls all Christians, not just some, but all Christians to give their lives as a living sacrifice to God. When you do this, you will be blessed. Every day is an opportunity to make the right choice or the wrong choice, but either way, we get to be a living sacrifice. And number three, there's not one position in the body of Christ more or less important than another one. You and I need to live like ambassadors for Christ. And remember, God knows your name. He knows every hair on your head, and he knows every thought in your mind. And that sometimes just blows my mind that God knows that much about me. He knows who you are. He knew you before you were born. He knew that today would be the day you would hear this message way before you were born. That's how much he knows about you. Are you aware how valuable you are to the kingdom of God? You are. Whoever you are and whatever you do is exactly as God intended it to be. He decided long before you were born just what talents you would have and what your unique contribution to the kingdom would look like. No one else can do what you do. And no one else can reach others with the joy and hope of the gospel message like you can. It doesn't matter if you work in the ministry or have a secular job, if you're a student or a professional, or if you're still figuring out God's path for you. Today, you can do great things for Him. We're so glad you joined us today for Come Alive, and we hope the message you've just heard was a blessing to you. Before we go, we'd like to share an opportunity for you to be a part of what we're doing here at Come Alive. Here's Tracy with more information. Thanks, Chris. 
Each edition of Come Alive that you hear has been professionally produced to minimize any distractions from the message of hope only God can bring. While we offer this program for free to our listeners, there are costs involved on our end. Would you pray about joining us as financial supporters of Come Alive? Any and all amounts are useful and so appreciated. Find out more at comealiveradio.com or you can text a donation to Calvary Katie at 77977. That's 77977. Thank you for prayerfully considering this. Thanks, Tracy. And thank you for joining us today for Come Alive.